I'd like to offer some reflections this morning on the one of the themes that's really very central area of reflection that the Buddha encouraged and invited us as practitioners to engage with, to turn towards. The uh, the theme of mortality, what it means to be a human being who's here for a while, but not forever. What it means to live in a world that's here for a while, but not forever. It's something that was primary in the Buddha's own inspiration and motivation for his journey and exploration. And I think the, the rather, you know, probably familiar to many of us, the story of his movement away from his conventional comfortable life into a, a journey of exploration was precipitated and uh, inspired, or we could even say compelled by his encounter with aging, with sickness, with death, seeing the reality of this. And It's important and useful for us, I think, to turn our attention to this, even if it may be a familiar theme for us. I always find it uh, interesting to remember and reflect on the fact that Gaia House is here in this building to a significant degree, perhaps, because we have a different relationship in terms of Dharma practice. We have a different relationship to encountering the reality of death and mortality than perhaps many organizations, institutions within within our culture. When Guy House was looking to move to larger premises about, uh, it was 1995, 96, and this place came on the market, uh, several other organizations were interested in purchase, purchasing it. One was to make a uh, sort of a holiday camp place for families, and the other was to make an old people's home. And one of the things the nuns here were really interested and keen to... Um, preserve was their graveyard which is just out behind the meditation hall here or the chapel as it then was and for us it was like great we get to have our own graveyard yes please and for the old people's home and the um, the family camp it was like oh I don't know about that they weren't so keen at all on having a, an active graveyard and uh, ultimately you know it seems we were sold this place for less than what some other people could have paid Partly, I think, because uh, the continuity of a place of spiritual practice was important to nuns, but also, I think, because we were we were keen on the idea of having a graveyard. And uh, the nuns of the order have as part of the deal that they can be buried there if they wish. And there's only been one burial since we bought it, but it still remains open for business, so to speak. But so much of our world, there's this kind of trying to tidy it up, trying to somehow move it out of our sight. The fact that mortality is with us is part of the immediacy and the reality of our existence. And um, again, a, a few years ago now, a, a regular retreatant here at Guy House who was involved in the medical profession made us the rather unusual but for us welcome uh, offer of a skeleton said actually this this is available if you would like to have it and as a body of teachers we were really happy it's like great how wonderful to have our own skeleton a number of the trustees were concerned that it might scare people away 
and we had some discussion and debate about that, but in the end it's clear to me that uh, having something that, although it might be challenging to us and that in our culture we don't really include so much, there's something really powerful about it. And uh, I've on numerous occasions heard from people about the power that and the impact they've uh, and the benefit they've experienced in relationship to encountering or sitting with or contemplating the skeleton that now sits in the walking room. So there's something about the, the invitation to turn towards, to see what's there. I mean, of course, you know, we say, is it okay to have a skeleton at Gaia House? It's a question. It's probably a reasonable debate could be had, but... There's, you know, I don't know, two, three dozen skeletons in the room right now. We just have them kind of tidily covered up, clothed in fabric and flesh. But there's no shortage of skeletons to contemplate. If we, even if we didn't have a, an unclothed one in the room next door. And it's interesting, useful just to notice what that's like to feel the invitation to turn towards this. Because sometimes we might turn with enthusiasm. And great, yes, this, this, this topic gives me some sense of vitality or excitement, interest. And others it might be, hmm, I'm not sure, I don't know. You might notice some resistance, some disinclination. And, uh, and that's really fine if that's the case. We're not supposed to have a particular response to it. And yet, I'm just acknowledging this is part of life. There is birth, there is death. And just pausing with that. On quite a few occasions in my life I've uh, had the experience of someone I know in perfect good health and well-being. And suddenly hearing that just going for a walk, they died. You know, father of a young child. Two, three years ago it happened. And it's happened several times in my life. And there's just the sense of someone I knew and I saw and I was in contact with and then they're just gone. And no chance to say goodbye to their, their partner or their child. No chance for completion, just gone some unexpected event. Every day, every day, people who expected to be here that day, people who were expected by others to be here on that day, this day, aren't here. Every day, it's like that. Just letting ourselves feel the vulnerability and the unpredictability that that involves. And for some of us it may be something we've been close to in recent times. And it's important to hold it with, with kindness if it's a place that feels raw or tender. Whether it's our own vulnerability or the vulnerability of those people or those things that we love and cherish in life. Because this this human body subject to aging, to illness, to accident. 
the soft human body. All life is soft. It's one of the characteristics of living things. They're soft. Even bony ones are kind of soft on the inside. And the contemplation is really to turn us towards that part of us that doesn't quite acknowledge, doesn't quite include, doesn't quite want to get what it means that we are this vulnerable human beings. And uh, a quite well-known story from the Indian spiritual classic, the Bhagavad Gita, the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna. And Krishna representing wisdom as the charioteer of Arjuna going into battle. And Arjuna asks him, you know, with all your great wisdom and uh, omniscience, Krishna, what's the greatest miracle you see in this vast universe? And Krishna responds, he says, you know, the greatest miracle is that while beings see others dying all around them, they somehow believe it won't happen to themselves. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we know, no one's probably going to argue, oh no, no, I'm going to live forever. We're not going to argue with our mortality. And yet that's something different from examining and questioning and sensing into where it might be within ourselves that we kind of operate from a place that doesn't quite believe it. And so the invitation in the Buddha's teaching is to contemplate it, to reflect. And in the time of the Buddha, in, in the area where he lived, dead bodies were just left in charnel grounds to rot. And the invitation was to go and look at a, a body, spend some time with it, newly dead, newly died, and go, ah, this body, my body will not escape this. This will happen to me. And look at it when it was rotting and putrid and smelly. And ah, this will happen to my body. This body will not escape this. And when it becomes just a skeleton, likewise, and then just a pile of bones, and then crumbling bones into dust, and then dust blown away. At each stage, just to contemplate, oh, this, my body too is subject to this. I have not gone beyond this. It's a powerful thing for us to turn towards. It's not always an easy thing. But I think it informs what we're doing in an incredibly helpful way. There's a, a gravestone in, a, in a, a cemetery in Norfolk where the person who died has left what seems to me a remarkable message behind carved on the gravestone it says this remember friends as you pass by as you are now so once was I as I am now so you must be prepare yourself to follow me and beautiful prepare yourself to follow me it's like the journey goes that way for us all, sooner or later, hopefully later, but uncertain as to when.
And so there's a way in which when we contemplate this, it asks us to kind of reflect on how am I living my life and what am I prioritizing when I don't take it for granted. And actually it's it's not something gloomy. I don't find it gloomy or depressing or macabre or sort of heavy in any way. To actually turn towards it, there's a kind of a quickening, there's a kind of a vitalizing, there's a, I find a sense of excitement and brightening that comes from this. Equally as of course there may be a, at times a heaviness of heart, a sorrow, a sadness, depending on what we turn towards. But one of the aspects is that we can feel a sense of urgency and feel the preciousness of this existence, this life, that we have this opportunity of life to, to develop, to grow, to learn, to deepen, to practice the Dharma. And to see what's really important for us, what we really want to emphasize Acknowledging our mortality gives us perspective on what really matters. There's a beautiful phrase from Don Juan, the teacher of Carlos Castaneda, recorded in a series of books written in the 70s and 80s. The teachings of Don Juan was the first. And uh, he talks about the way that, uh, in a very beautiful way, the sense that when we turn towards death, when we acknowledge death, it kind of gives us really good advice for how to live our life. And uh, there's a, just a particular phrase that I really find powerful. To, to turn to death, to ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women who live their lives as if let death will never tap them. A sense of the the pettiness, so much of what we get caught up in and broiled with. Petty can sound a little pejorative, and maybe that's not quite the right way, or maybe that's how we meant it, but I think understanding that we have to make choices about what we give our life and our energy to, and it's so easy to be drawn into giving so much of our life and our energy, and this remarkable, mysterious, and precious gift of existence being given towards things which in the end if we ask ourselves we know this is not what's most important. So many of the irritations we can encounter on retreat. You know, sometimes the food isn't quite the way we like it. Sometimes other people are annoying. They make noises when they shouldn't. They come late or do things or, you know, the organization tends to do business when it's supposed to be silent here. All sorts of things go on. And in some ways they're kind of irrelevant. They're really not that important. Our own particular reactivities and aspects of ourselves we might be a bit tired of or frustrated with, want to sort out. Sure, that's okay. But not to make too much of it. in the light of our mortality. That maybe isn't what's most important. So what is it to live close to this? How does this affect us? I think in many ways, 
and usefully that sense of what's important. There was a sort of a kind of social experiment that took place in a in a prison in Texas some years ago with the death row inmates, and there were quite a number of them in this particular prison. And they, rather than being kept in solitary as they normally are for what can be considerable periods of time um, prior to their sentences being carried out, executions, they, they were put in a situation where, with some supervision, they were encouraged to work together on some simple projects and activities. And somewhat surprisingly to some at least, but not to others, it was noted that there was quite a degree of tenderness and kindness between them as they worked together, despite these being quite tough, hard-bitten characters for the most part, many of whom will have done quite horrific things, some of whom, of course, may not have, tragically, in the way that system works. But nonetheless, there was this kind of, in what's normally quite an aggressive and fear-filled environment there was sort of perceived and seen quite a bit of tenderness and when the when the participants were asked what was happening what, what what did they notice there the response that came from many of them was yes yes we there seems to be a certain friendliness and kindness here we acknowledge that and it's like of course you know because we all know that each of us is going to die like we know that it's going to happen and it somehow changes us when we see that, when we reflect on that, remembering the mortality of the people we find difficult, including ourselves, actually. Sometimes a really helpful support for beginning to soften and open our heart. How might we wish to be met or to meet those difficult people if we met them on the day of their death, knowing it was that day? How might that affect our heart? The Buddha once observed seeing some of his followers getting involved in arguments, in which it seems like it got quite nasty sometimes. The texts describe the stabbing of each other with verbal daggers. You know, we sometimes have this idea of, you know, Buddhists being nice, and it doesn't sound like they always were, and certainly they aren't always. But that sense of quite aggressive or angry interactions and the Buddha responded once saying knowing you will all die how can you quarrel like this doesn't mean we don't have disagreements but that kind of bitter or hateful aggressive energy that comes is normally arising because we haven't got a perspective on mortality And it speaks also to the possibility and the need and the call for generosity to share our lives, understanding we don't get to keep what we have. In the prophet, Khalil Gibran speaks of this. He says, all that you have will be taken. Give now so that the season of generosity will be yours and not your inheritors. Not your inheritors. So that one actually has the season of generosity in one's own life so much the sort of the hoarding of keeping of things that you know it's become an obsession and a disease in our culture people having to you know hire extra spaces and more and more to keep all the stuff they have we have filling up our spaces feeling crowded by it happens to me too 
And sometimes just, you know, oh, actually, give it away. Move it on. Share it if we can. It makes sense to do this. And that ending of complacency, contemplating death has the effect of ending complacency about our life. Even in a retreat after, what, 10, 12 days, kind of, for many of us, it will be getting a little more comfortable than it was at the beginning. And, you know, we might come with a deep aspiration for, for, for awakening, for, for deepening, for profound discovery. And then after the challenges and the ups and downs and we kind of settle in and things are more smooth, it's kind of, actually, yeah, I wouldn't mind just having some more nice meditations. They'll be all right by me. I'll take that. So easily we can lose the, the fire and the edge of our aspiration. And to come back to this and the light of death and the contemplation of mortality, of ours, of others, of the world, which too is subject to mortality. I had a very powerful experience of this when I was a young man, and the closest friend I had during school, who had his family had been a refuge for me when I was in my teens, and my own family had kind of disintegrated and didn't have anywhere to go, and they let me come and stay at their place. And um, in his early 20s, as we both were, my friend had a routine surgery that went wrong and it went wrong over a course of six months of continued interventions and surgeries that eventually left him in a condition where his body really couldn't sustain. He was being kept alive by machines, addicted to the drugs and no chance of any life beyond that circumstance. He, He decided to end it, to ask them to turn off the machines. And he died. And it was a profoundly impactful experience for me and for everyone, his family, friends, of course. And at the time I was living and working in a high-powered professional job in a big city and absolutely hating what I was doing and desperately wanting to get out of it, but completely terrified of the prospect of giving up the only sense of security I had in my life around having a job and a place to live. And when Radar died, we called him Radar, he had big ears that stuck out. When Radar died, he gave me an incredible gift because his choice and his life and his death said to me very clearly, actually, do it now. Don't wait to follow what feels most important for you. Don't wait until it's more comfortable, more convenient, more well-organized. Do it now. And I think this is something for all of us to contemplate, whether we hold back and following what is in the fire of our hearts and our bellies, because it's not comfortable, it's not convenient. There'll be a better time. There may not be a better time. We may not get another chance. If you've made plans for what you're doing on your next retreat already. And how easily we do that. We make plans for an extra retreat while we're doing this one. No guarantee of another retreat. And so what would you do if this was the last day of your life? How might we live? 
I'm hoping it won't be. But I remember when uh, a friend and a fellow teacher, Shada, was here teaching a retreat. I think it might have been actually in November retreat, but I can't remember, many years ago. And she talked about that particular question and uh, one of the staff at Guy House who was living here but whose teenage daughters were in Australia actually just thought, oh, I'm going back to Australia. I'm not trying to encourage you to leave the retreat and go and do something else. But that sense of, yeah, sometimes we realise, oh, I need to do something in my life. And of course we might say, I want to do this. It's actually to do with giving ourselves fully to where we are. This might be the most important thing. We might also contemplate in this context and reflecting in this theme. The way we tend to prioritize and I do, I know at times, that sense of what it is the pressure we're under to make a living. We have to make a living, don't we? That's the, it's so many things turn around that when we make choices with our life. I have to make a living. It's true, we do. But what would it be to make a dying, to make our, not just make our living, but make our dying in the same way? To see that sense of to live well, to make our living is to enable ourselves to live well. To make our dying is to enable ourselves to die well. And with all the demands and things we could be or should be doing, that the world and others require or ask or need from us, it seems, I think it's interesting to contemplate what happens when we actually sometimes say no. Because one day the world's going to have to get on without us. One day. Unknown exactly when. And there's something kind of useful about giving the world some practice on that. You know, the world can be kind of worried about the fact that one day we're not going to be there to make everything happen that only happens because we're here. And if we kind of just step out of that sometimes, it kind of gives the world a chance to realize that it'll, it'll cope. The world's a lot more relaxed when we as individuals can not feel that we have to carry it. And what that means is that when we actually can make choices to say this is what's important to me, that sometimes involve disappointing another. Because we've understood what's most important for ourselves and our sense of the world. So one of the foundations for making our dying, of course, is ethics, a sense of actually care for life. And, you know, interestingly, the first precept to refrain from taking life. Every being that we ever encounter is going to die. And yet, of course, taking real care with that to not bring about, if we possibly can, the death of another creature. This very living world system, subject too, to mortality, this planet, and seeing what in our way of living can we do to not contribute to that? And this is a real question for our time. If 
facing not just the mortality of individuals but species, ecosystems, even world systems. When we do what we can in that regard, one of the, the fruit of this is what the Buddha talks about as a, the, the state of non-regret. doesn't mean we don't have remorse and sadness for things that we might regard as mistakes or things that have happened that we feel sorry with regard to and sad, but a sense of integrity around having done the best we could with our life to refrain from causing harm and to, so far as possible, contribute to the well-being of others, of the world, of ourselves too, being part of that world. A degree of, there's a kind of a peace of heart and mind that comes from this and that I think is very much supported, again, by holding our choices and our actions in the light of our mortality. I think it helps with a certain kind of care and attention to the particularities. And there's a, also an invitation of completion for completion when we contemplate our death and the uncertainty as to when it will come to us. You know, to people we are close to, care about, to, to tell them what we might want to tell them if we weren't sure we'd have another chance to speak to them. To say, I love you, or I forgive you, or I appreciate what you've given to me. I was with my father beginning of this year in New Zealand, his 80th birthday. He's quite frail. I don't know if he'll be there the next time I go. I imagine it's quite possible his parents lived into their 90s, but on the other hand, they didn't look as frail as he does now when, when they turned 80. And there was, for me, a certain importance in just actually taking a little time to express my appreciation to him for all the ways he managed to horribly screw my life over. Really, you know, I could focus on that too. But actually, the ways in which also, wow, he did some really good things. He brought some really important and precious things into my life. And just to really stop and say thank you. And I'm not even sure he could hear it or take it in. But for me, I could say it. And that was really important. And I think it's something got in there. For many years, Catherine, my wife and I, when we would go in different directions, as we often did, in, uh, sort of teaching retreats most often in different places, we just take a moment to pause and just say, I hope I see you again. With no particular expectation that we wouldn't see each other again, because mostly the plan was to come home. But just taking a moment to feel that sense of that, but we don't quite know for sure. I hope I see you again. And something stays alive in a relationship when we might include that, not just a relationship as a you know a marriage partnership intimate and committed but even just with friends we just oh, I hope I see you again not just see you again but actually I hope I see you again for me I find that very powerful very touching 
And that sense of just noticing what might it be that if I hadn't really given attention and care to this, I might at some point later in my life feel sorrow and remorse for. And uh, last year I traveled to India to uh, to see my grandmother who's from Calcutta, she's Bengali, and she was turning 100 on my mother's side. And there'd been this feeling for me of, oh, I'll be really sad if I... I if she dies before I spend some more time with her. She actually, I do see her also, she lives part of the year in Sweden, so I see her there, but in India she's alive. In Sweden she just, uh, anyway, she, she, she lives in a rather dark little old people's flat and doesn't go out much. But in India she comes alive and she goes back there still. So she's quite remarkable in that way. But the visiting, there was that sense for me of this is something I felt for a long time I want to do and oh, can I justify flying to India on a, essentially a social visit, you know, um, but in the end, having done it, I felt really like a sense of, I'm glad I did that. In this case, not before I die, but before she dies. But equally before I die. In his book, um, A Year to Live, Stephen Levine, a Dharma teacher, he, he made the remarkable observation at the end of this um this book in which he's talking about a, a program where people live for a year as if they're going to die at the end of the year and they do everything as if they absolutely are going to die at that point. And I've not done that particular course, but I've talked to plenty of people who have and read the book, as I said. And I think a very powerful and beautiful um, journey for people, transformative in many, many ways. And one of the things he says at the end of the book, or maybe it's not at the end, at some point, but that he understood through this training and practice that he was engaged in, he said... In the end, love was the only rational act of a lifetime. And I think it's a really beautiful, pithy truth being spoken. And we kind of sometimes, and I, I like it particularly because we sometimes think rationality and love are somehow opposed to each other. So if we think, you know, rationality tells me, you know, worry more about my um, sort of bank account. Perhaps love tells me to worry something more about something else, but that love was the only rational act of a lifetime. Anything that doesn't come from that does not make sense in the life of death, in the light of death. The Buddha himself said, of this practice, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if they're already dead. So much of our reenactment of history through unconscious repetitive behaviors and patterns, unexamined if we're unconscious, is simply that. It's, it's something already dead, playing again and again and again. And, you know, I'm kind of struck by the modern enthusiasm in, cult in our culture for zombie stories and zombie movies and you know some, some of the most popular television apparently is about you know fighting off hordes of dead people coming to eat you um, I've not watched any of it but you know it's like wow interesting huh in a world where more and more we can be living on autopilot at high speed unconscious There's a living death when we're simply repeating the past unconsciously, unexamined, unawake.
and practice is coming out of that, waking up to it and coming out of that, to let life live and be free of that. In a way, the shadow and entanglement of the past. Which doesn't mean, of course, that the past doesn't have a place and that the effects of the past don't need to be attended to and cared for. Of course they do. But that one knows that this is actually part of the kindness and the love and the compassion expressed in the present to do so. So when we actually contemplate death, our death, we start to feel, I think, some of the vibration, the significance, the potency, and it's all very well to hear about all the good things, we might say, that might be encouraged and invited. And yet, I think, inevitably and naturally, there's also a hesitation we have with turning towards, with opening into this. And I mean, it's a topic I talk about not infrequently and yeah I still feel as I as I come towards it it's like okay I can just talk about this or I could actually feel this as I endeavor to talk about it and it's a journey too it's not just oh I'll do that it's like oh it's a journey what is it to feel that to actually come into contact with it because initially of course what we encounter is often some form of fear and yet the fear is really about our thoughts our ideas around death and that's kind of natural, really, because what death represents for us is an absence of a reference point for me, for I, for the sense of self that has some clear trajectory, and that trajectory is then intersected, cut, by the contemplation of our mortality, the, the sense of continuity, of ongoingness is unsustainable in the face of that. And it's it's scary because we don't quite know how to hold that. The whole sense of self doesn't know what to do in the face of that. And I think it's interesting to reflect that almost all, in fact I would say all fear, but it's not always possible to discern it, actually comes back one way or another to that fear of annihilation, the fear of death, the sense of what is ceasing. Many of the things that we're scared of, uh, we're scared of them because they represent or reflect some experience from our early experience in which we were overwhelmed by the intensity of our inner response that we are unable to handle and hold to the effect, to the degree that actually the, the whole sense of awareness becomes overwhelmed. And it's like being annihilated for an infant when its system is overloaded and there's no support for discharge. Effectively, it's like death with no perception of future because our infant doesn't have that. And, and somehow this fear of annihilation of death that, that comes when we don't quite know what will be leads to a, quite a strong urge to somehow want to put something there. The truth is that it's uncertain and inherently unsettling to contemplate this. What we might notice, of course, is beliefs and views and ideas that arise. You know, the scientists who say, oh, 
or the materialists, maybe not just scientists, who say, oh, there's obviously nothing after death. The body dies and it's all over. And that seems to be a pretty popular view. But we don't know. And, of course, there might be the Buddhists and other religious folk who say, oh, there's definitely something that happens. Life after death, rebirth, reincarnation, however we want to call it. Rebirth is the technical term used in the Buddhist teaching. And there's often sort of the accusation, oh, that sounds like a bit of a consolation, you know, to make yourself feel better. Well, it's only a consolation if, if you're m mostly having a good time. Actually, if you're having a bad time, then the thought that it stops and it doesn't happen anymore, that's consolation. It's like, great, it gets to stop. Whew. But the truth is we don't know. We don't know. And the only thing we can really engage with here is that it's what is it for me to engage with the unknown what is it for me to turn towards this that can't be held or grasped and yet that can be encountered where we're no longer relying on our beliefs and our ideas and our conceivings about And it's not easy for us to do because it involves a sense of loss. The loss of our past, our future, everything in fact. That sense of loss is something that really is a gateway, a doorway, an opening. And yet not something easy to turn towards. a story recently of a, a young teenage boy it was in the in the news in, in England I think a couple of years ago now who got stuck on the train tracks playing with his friends or messing about probably and he suddenly got stuck and uh, could, they couldn't get him free and he called his dad and said help I'm stuck on a train track his dad said, yeah, I'm coming. And he says, Dad, there's a train coming. And his father is trying to get there. But the train gets there first. And they're on the phone. Now, the story didn't exactly say whether one of them hung out before the train got there. But I'm kind of imagining they wouldn't have. And there's this thing. Here's this young boy. And his dad is the one who has to save him here. And here's his father, and his job, if there's a job he has in the world, is to save his son. And it's not what happens. And that they're actually in contact there. For me, I found that incredibly touching. That sense of... Right there, perhaps till the moment of the train arriving, the young boy's death, the father's loss. And what is it for us to let ourselves feel and be touched by that? That part of why we can't easily go 
to this territory. Part of why something in us holds back from it, and really understandably, of course, is because opening to the degree of grief and loss and the unknownness that that would involve is perhaps beyond us, certainly beyond us doing easily. And it's not just the loss of that particular death or our particular death and the loss that we will experience of those that we love and things that we love that we'll no longer be in contact with. But it's that when we, when we encounter grief, of course, and loss, somehow the continuum of all grief and all loss in our life seems to be there. They somehow sit inside each other like Russian dolls and as we open up or open to one, it's all there. And so far as we haven't already done the work of turning towards it when we can, it's so much harder to do it when we have to, when we have no longer any choice. And it's also a gateway and a profound gateway. Now the Buddha suggested contemplating our mortality it was not something to be done every day or even every mealtime, but perhaps with every breath. Knowing every out-breath when it goes out, of course. We kind of imagine there'll be an in-breath. We kind of presume there'll be an in-breath, but for many people, today and every day, when that out-breath goes out, there won't be an in-breath. And it doesn't come with a sign that says, this is the last one. It just goes out. And then the in-breath doesn't happen. And that's it. Mostly. To turn towards this, this imminence, potential imminence of of loss that is beyond what we can really conceive. is difficult and challenging for us because it's scary and it hurts, of course, understandably. And important to be compassionate with ourselves in this territory as we contemplate it or as we hear reflections such as these, as we encounter it in the world. But there's also a way in which it brings us into contact with the deeper loss, which is the loss in the depths of our heart, our being, where we have lost contact with, lost connection with the fundamental truth and beingness of what is sacred, what is precious, that we could call the Dharma, that we could call life or truth. When we take birth in unconsciousness, we lose contact with what is most precious. When we allow ourselves to die in the moment, to the future, 
enter the wakefulness of our immediacy. We have to die in dying. We have to pass through that doorway of loss and of grief and of fear. But through that doorway we also encounter perhaps what our first and deepest loss centers around. When we don't hold on, when we don't lean forward into the future, we make ourselves vulnerable to and available for the touch of life that runs deep into us. And what the Buddha spoke of as the deathless. So we may come to understand also that although death is inescapable, what is most true does not die. I'd like to finish with a poem by Red Hawk, a Native American elder. It's entitled, The Time Comes When It Is Easier to Die. And he writes, We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold. The grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You will have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women and men will cease to be thrilled with you and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to dig than to die. Sorry, it is easier to die than to dig. 
The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken, while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. So let's just sit quietly for a couple of moments together. So may we all find the courage and kindness of heart to really turn towards our mortality and the mortality of life around us. To open our hearts to inspire our practice and to remind us the Buddha's teachings, pointing us to the realization of freedom and the deathless for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.